0: Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, uh, selected passages from chapters 3 through chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I shall do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. My people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring bring out the people of Israel from among them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me.
1: Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you. I love this time of year, and uh, it's, it's always fun to sing the songs we don't get to sing any other time of the year and to, to talk about the kinds of things that we get to talk about around Christmas. We are in the middle of a series, as you might well n- take note of this morning, even if you haven't been here for the past couple of weeks, looking at the story of the exodus of Israel from Egypt in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, and what we've said is that God is a God who saves. Uh, that's what this story is about. That's what Christmas is about. God is a God who saves. But we have to ask this question, why? And it's a question we don't often ask. And that question, why, why is God doing what he's doing here for Israel? Okay, And it takes us back to what we've already learned about who God is and why he created the heavens and the earth and how he intends to use us to fulfill his purposes and desires. All of these things we've been learning about all fall as we've started in Genesis chapter 1 and made our way through the Old Testament scriptures. God saves according to everything we've seen already because there's a mission. Now do you remember what the mission is? The mission he gave to Adam and Eve and then to Noah and then to Abraham and his family and obviously to the Israelites was to multiply and have dominion and fill the earth with the glory of God. And what's happened is is the mission is no longer going forward. It has been derailed by this 400 years of slavery that that, that Israel has had to undergo in Egypt. And that's why God comes down. Look at what he says to Pharaoh right at the end of the passage there in verse 16 of chapter 9. For this purpose, he says, I've raised you up. And what purpose? To show my power that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. There it is again, see? That's the goal, that's the mission, that the name of God, the name of Jesus Christ might go to the ends of the earth. And we are the instruments of that mission. I mean, that's the other thing we've been learning, right? That there's a mission and we are the instruments that are to carry out that mission. So you might remember what Adam and Eve commanded, God commanded of Adam and Eve, go into all the world and fill my, my, you know, my earth with my image. And then to Abraham, go to a land that I'll show you and... and I'll bless you there. And then again, of course, to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4, he says, go, Moses, go to Israel in Egypt. Go down to Egypt and Pharaoh. I'm sending you down there. So in all of these different spots, you can see that the command that's upon our lives is this command to go, which means that the problem here at the beginning of the book of Exodus is that the going has been halted. So God comes to Pharaoh and he says, what? Let my people go. Right? Let's get that going, going again. Right? And then he says to the Israelites, Israel, Israel get up and go. We're, we're getting out of here. We're getting back to what we've, we were supposed to be doing from the beginning, to, to be going. Okay? So God is rescuing his people to put them back on mission. That's what we learn. And that's the why. And what it means, if you're here and you're a Christian... Which means you've had personally and subjectively an experienced something like what happens to Israel here. God has rescued you. It means that he has rescued you to put you on mission as well. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. That there's an obedience that this passage calls out of us. And we want to look at it uh, in, under these three headings. And the outlines not be very helpful to you. I'm sorry I did that early in the week and things changed. And I know I always say that. Why do it then, right? I, we keep doing it. I don't know. We keep trying. But I just want to talk about these three things. I think the passage answers or talks around these three points. First, why we should obey God. Secondly, why we don't obey Him. And then thirdly, how we can. So why we should, why we don't, and how we can obey the Lord. That's really what this passage is about. And so I want to look at each of those three things uh, together. If you would just follow along with me and we'll follow the outline. Okay, so first... Why we should obey him because he's a god of signs and wonders. Okay, or in other words, where does the obe- where does obedience come from? I mean, it, where does the the energy for the kind of obedience uh, that God calls us to here in this passage come from? The answer is it comes from all. The answer is it comes from worship. And the deeper problem in this passage, underneath our obedience, you see it in chapter three. When Moses uh, comes to the burning bush and he asks, has to ask the God who's appeared to him in the burning bush, what's your name? In other words, who are you? You know, I, I don't know you. Tell me who you are so that I can tell the people you're sending me to who you are as well. And then in chapter 5, Pharaoh, right there in verse 2, asks a similar question. In his first encounter with Moses and Aaron, uh, they come and say, the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh kind of mockingly says, well, who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice? I don't know the Lord. I mean, who, we, who is this God we're talking about here? And so both Moses, and we're going to see in a minute, the Israelites and Pharaoh don't know Yahweh. They don't reverence him. There's no awe of him. And God knows this is a problem. So listen to what he says. And it's the why I picked this menagerie of passages, okay? Because I wanted you to see this theme that gets played out. And hopefully you picked up on it as Susan read. But God knows there's a problem. And so listen to the things he says all throughout this passage. Beginning in, in chapter 6, verse 7. I will redeem you, he says, And the consequence will be, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Then again at the beginning of chapter 7, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, the Lord says, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hands on Egypt, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And then obviously, as we've already read, verse 16 of chapter 9, but for this purpose, I've raised you up to show my power, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so... If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or it's been a long time since you've been in church and you've maybe got a lot of questions, this is a great place for you to start because the first question you have to answer is, who is God? What's he like? And those are the questions that this passage is meant to answer. And that's why each week this Advent season we're highlighting a different attribute or characteristic of God. Of God. And so we've, we've spent time meditating on the fact that he's patient, that he takes 400 years to come to the rescue, Right? We've talked about the fact that he is present, even in painful situations where it may feel like he's a million miles away. He is God with us. And now this morning, we're going to look and see that God is powerful. For this purpose, for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, he says to Pharaoh. So this is a passage about the power of God meant to elicit awe and ultimately obedience. The God of the Exodus is not someone to be trifled with. You don't play games with the God who does these kinds of things. You worship him and obey him. And in these chapters, Yahweh is putting his power on display to win the worship and obedience of his people and of Pharaoh and of Egypt and the entire world. And really, the story, you thought... the. the The passage was a really long passage. It was really a short, condensed version of about nine chapters of Scripture in the book of Exodus, and we don't have time to read the whole thing. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, let me summarize kind of what happens here. God is sending Moses to have a showdown with the most powerful man in the known world. Not even a man, really. More like a God on the earth. That's what Pharaoh considered himself and what the people considered him. And yet God is coming to wrestle Israel away from Pharaoh's grasp and in the process to prove his power and supremacy over Pharaoh and all of the other gods of Egypt. And this wrestling match takes the form of a series of ten plagues. And maybe you've seen the Charlton Heston movie or the Prince... Somebody, it was, it was interesting to see the... the uh, the uh, generational divide, we were in our pastor's meeting, and one of the older guys in the meeting, when I say older, I mean like, you know, maybe 50, so not old by any stretch, but just a little older. He said, I can't read this without thinking Charleston Heston, Charleston Heston. and I said, yeah, not me. I can't, I can't read it without thinking Disney, Prince of Egypt, right? So whether it's Charleston Heston or Prince of Egypt, you've probably seen, you've probably seen this at some point, okay? Ten times God sends Moses to Pharaoh, demanding that Pharaoh release Israel, And each time Pharaoh refuses, so God sends a plague. He sends some sort of natural disaster to humble Pharaoh and to prove his power and supremacy. So the first plague in chapter 7, Moses stretches out his staff and the Nile River turns to blood. And still Pharaoh won't let the people go. And then comes the second plague, frogs. A plague of frogs, frogs in the home Frogs in the bed, frogs in the flour making the bread, frogs in the cabinets, frogs everywhere. And I that's pretty gross, if you ask me. And then after the frogs, a third plague of gnats or something like fleas or mosquitoes that would bite and aggravate people. And then a fourth plague, a swarm of flies, probably something like a, a fly that like a horse fly that would also have a bite or a sting that would just Drive drive you crazy, and then after the flies, the fifth plague, which which was the death of all of the livestock in Egypt, and so all of the the cows and the sheep and everything that they would eat fell dead in the uh, in the fields. And then after the death of the livestock, the people broke out and boils, something like a painful skin rash that would you know fester and and be pretty gross and painful. And then the seventh plague in chapter nine, hail and fire that fell from heaven, destroying all of the houses and the rest of the animals in the fields. And by this point, Pharaoh is desperate and tells Moses that he will relent and let Israel go. That is until the hail stops. And as soon as it stops, Pharaoh changes his mind and hardens his heart again and will not let them go. And so comes the eighth plague, which is a plague of locusts that devoured the crops. And so now there's the prospect of famine and starvation And Pharaoh calls to Moses and says that they can go. But as soon as God sends the locusts away, he changes his mind yet again. And so there is the ninth plague, which is a darkness. Uh, The commentators say darkness that could be felt. Uh, In in the Hebrew, it means something like a dark darkness. Maybe something like a sandstorm. Uh, Some kind of horrifying darkness that falls over the land. And one last time, Pharaoh agrees... Until it's light, the lights come on again, and then he changes his mind yet again. And then comes the climax, which is the tenth plague, and we'll look at this in detail next week. But it is uh, that that God slayed every firstborn son in Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh realizes we can't keep going on like this, and he lets the people go. And there are two technical terms that are very important to understand uh, and and to understand the reason for all of this. In chapter 7, and I put them there for you, chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, he will not listen to you. And so the plagues that God sends are signs and wonders. And let me explain what each of those things mean. The Hebrew word wonder is from a root which means something like beyond the ordinary or miraculous. It refers to a miracle. So the plagues in Egypt, though, they might be explained by natural causes, and people have tried to do this, right? In other words, silt, silt getting into the Nile, turning the Nile red, which would destroy the ecosystem of the river, sending the frogs out of the river, and then heaps of dead frogs attracting flies and insects, and insects leading to disease, and so on and so on, right? You can see this. These, the, what, what, what that word wonder preserves is that these things, according to Moses, who's writing this, are a result of the direct supernatural intervention of God its displays of his power and might so when you read the psalms for example you come across this word wonder and what the bible wants you to when you come across the word wonder it wants you to think miracle god's wonders are his direct miraculous powerful intervention into human history to bring salvation okay but then there's the Hebrew word sign these are signs and wonders and that word sign means that the plagues were not simply naked displays of power. They were strategic in the sense that they carried with them certain theological truth. They were pointers, right, to a truth or, or an explanation that God wanted to convey. So in the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus' miracles are often called signs. So you read in John 2, just as an example, when Jesus turned the water into wine, this is how John puts it. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus did and manifested his glory. And so the miracle was not just the display of God. of Jesus. In other words, the point is not that Jesus just has the power to take water and turn it to wine. When Jesus takes the water and turns it into wine, it's, it's a pointer to a spiritual reality that he is, a, he is Messiah whom the prophet said. And I know some of us from you know, a little more legalistic background might have our time with this. But the prophet said that when Messiah come comes, the rivers that flow out of the mountains would no longer be rivers of water. They would become rivers of wine. Because the joy would be so much at the coming of Messiah. And and so it's a sign pointing to the reality of what Jesus has come to do. And in the same way, these plagues in the Exodus story are just naked displays of God's power. They aren't. They're loaded with spiritual meaning. Now having said that, I have a confession to make. It's hard for us to know exactly what the spiritual meaning might have (laughs) been. After all, this is an ancient society and we're separated by 4,000 years of history But most scholars and commentators agree that the Lord is systematically dismantling and destroying the structures of idolatry in Egypt and showing the gods of Egypt to be impotent in comparison to his sovereignty and strength. So whereas the Egyptians might, uh, well, we know that they worshipped the Nile River, God strikes the Nile River as to show his supremacy over it. And where the Pharaoh was worshipped as the son of the god Ra, the god of the sun, god blots the sun out of the sky to show his supremacy and power. He is systematically dismantling structures of of idolatry. And probably the most striking thing, however, uh, is in chapter 9 at the very end of what we read this morning. And it comes uh, after the sixth plague. If you look there, I want you to pay attention because this is significant. God says to Pharaoh... Verse 14, for this time I'll send all my plagues on you. There's already been six, okay? But God says something, something different is about to happen. I'm going to send all my plagues on you. And then look what he says. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you with, and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off. But for this purpose I've raised you up to show my power. Now what this is referring to is the back and forth struggle that happens in the story. There's a terrible plague. Pharaoh decides to let Israel go, but then he hardens his heart which necessitates another plague, which is a greater demonstration of God's power, and so on. And, of course, the question that always gets asked is, well, did, did this go on because God hardened Pharaoh's heart or because Pharaoh hardened his own heart? And you read both of those to be true in the text, and the answer is both of those things are true. And I don't have any more time to say anything more about that this morning. What I want you to see is the effect and the effect of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which led to a multiplication of these miraculous things that God did, the effect of that is that God's power is put on display in greater significance at the end of ten plagues than it would be at the end of six. God saying, we could have been done with this already. I could have sent one. We could have been one and done. Right? I could have wiped you out with one. But I've let it go on. Because I want to show... Who I really am. And if that unsettles you. If that makes you a little nervous. Or if it makes you a little bit angry. Ah, we're getting close to awe now. See. So, why we should obey him. Okay, why? Because he is a God that is not to be trifled with. He is a God you don't play games with, he should be worshipped and he should be obeyed because he's a God of infinite power and might. But secondly, why do we not obey him? In other words, if awe is what should be motivating us, what's the opposite of awe? Okay? And you see it in both Pharaoh and Moses and the Israelites who fail to obey God because of unbelief. So look at Exodus 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 2. We've seen this already, but I want you to see it again. The Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? The word of God comes to Pharaoh, and he responds by saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Okay? But then in 6-9 as well, Moses comes to the people of Israel, and we're told Moses spoke thus to the people, but they did not listen. Okay? Pharaoh would not listen. Israel would not listen. Israel did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. In other words, Pharaoh didn't listen because he was arrogant and proud, and his pride made him willful and obstinate. Moses and Israel didn't listen because they were discouraged and afraid, and their fear made them cynical, and both are unbelief. Both pride and fear are rooted in a wrong understanding and application of God's power. They're, they're the opposite of awe. And in the Exodus, God is flipping this around. He's, he's revealing his power to Pharaoh and to Moses and the Israelites, and, and, and that's what he's going after. So I want to I address both of these things that we see here, both the pride in Pharaoh and the fear in Moses and in the Israelites that will destroy your obedience, that are the opposite of the kind of awe that we're to live with. So let's look at each of those uh, for a minute. Can we do that? First, Pharaoh. Pharaoh Pharaoh is proud and stubborn because his reference point for life is not God's power. C.S. Lewis says, said it this way. He said, pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. I'm reading Mere Christianity again, and he goes on in the chapter about pride to say, as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. I mean, think, As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. Because a proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see what is above you. Isn't that great? And the way the story captures this is by saying that Pharaoh has a hard heart, right? So, for example, when the plague hits, he appears to be willing to meet God's demands, but then God relents and... You read something like, when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen. And this happens over and over and over again. He has a hard heart. He's willful. He's stubborn. He refuses to bend the knee to God and admit he's outmatched. I mean, one of the commentators I read this week said that this is a conflict of wills. A conflict of wills between Yahweh and Pharaoh. In other words, they're squaring off. God has Pharaoh in a chokehold, but Pharaoh refuses to tap out. And in the Exodus, God is coming right at his pride to break him. I mean, he's coming right at Pharaoh's pride in this Exodus story. So, if you look back at the song that Mary sings in our our Assurance of Pardon that Jonathan read for us just a few minutes ago, there's a pattern of God's salvation there. And in verses 51 and 52, she sings this. She says, The Lord has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their throne. So, in other words, what Mary says is, she's contemplating what God is doing in, in the Incarnation. And she says... That the power of God that he puts on display in the plagues and in the sending of Jesus into the world is meant to do just that. He's working to thwart Pharaoh's power, or at least Pharaoh's perception that he actually has power. And that, that phrase, he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart, means that the problem with having power... Right, The problem with being on top is you can begin to think that you really are in control of your life. Your heart can come to really believe that you are the center of the universe and that everybody else exists to serve you. And when that happens, what happens? I mean, what happens when that happens? Well, you begin to act like Pharaoh. And most people with power do, apart from a supernatural encounter of God's grace. So see, if you, if you do not know God's power, if his power is not the reference point for your life, you'll look to your own power and resources, you'll go through life trusting in your own strength to make things happen. And that's what the Bible means when it, when it talks about unbelief. And here's what will happen. It'll make you impatient. It'll make you stubborn and willful, right? Do you know what I mean by that? Do you know what I mean by willful? You've experienced this with people. I promise they push, 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 push until they get what they want. Nobody. Okay, well, talk to me about that later. Right? If you don't know God's power to save, you're going to go through life relying on your own strength. You'll be a bully, just like Pharaoh. You'll use people. You'll take advantage of people to get power or to keep power or to get more power, just like Pharaoh. Because C.S. Lewis, in his chapter on pride, again, he says, power is what pride enjoys. Power is what pride enjoys. And in the Exodus... Pharaoh's coming up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to himself. And that's a real problem for him because he has never met someone he can't manipulate or control. That is until Moses and Aaron walked into his throne room. And God makes his power known to banish all pride and arrogance because pride is spiritual cancer. He works against the proud, we're told. He scatters the proud into the thoughts of their hearts. In other words, he makes them feel their weakness. That's what this whole thing's about. God is wrestling Pharaoh into submission to prove to Pharaoh and to Moses and to the Israelites and to the whole earth that he, among all gods, is to be worshipped and obeyed. And so the first reason we don't obey is because we're proud. Like Pharaoh, pride is the opposite of all, but don't miss, okay? There's a lot of you in the room who are thinking, man, I'm off the hook, because that's definitely not me, but I'm going to catch you right here. Okay, then there's Moses and the Israelites. Okay, let's stick with Moses for just a second. Moses, this whole bit here in verses, in chapters 3 and 4 is just remarkable. Moses is afraid and doesn't want to go to Egypt because his reference point for life is not God's power either. So look at the exchange there in, verses, in chapters 3 and 4, okay? God comes to him in the burning bush and says, okay, first of all, God in a burning bush, okay? Can you just get that in your imagination for just one second? A bush. There's a voice out of a bush. I'm sending you to Egypt. And what's Moses' response? Lord, who am I that I should go to Egypt? Right, let me translate that for you. That's not this false modesty. That's, I can't do that. You got the wrong guy. You got to be kidding me. No way, absolutely, nope, nope. Out of the question. The Lord comes to him and says, Moses, I'll go with you then Moses just starts to get whiny, okay? But they won't believe me. I'm not a good public speaker. Please send somebody else, right? And at first pass, it may look like Moses is being humble. Let me just clarify. This is not humility. It's unbelief. And I know it's unbelief because the Lord doesn't pat him on the back and say, there, there, Moses. You've got to believe in yourself, right? Stuart Smiley, he didn't have a Stuart Smalley session with him or anything, Okay? What we read is, no, look at what the text says. Verse 14 of chapter 4. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And why is God angry? He's angry because he's already said, I will be with you. And what more does Moses need? Who has made man's mouth? Is it not me? Is anything too difficult for me? In other words, I am the God who made the world out of nothing. I can snap my fingers and wipe Egypt off the map. I can put my words in the mouth of a donkey. I can surely put my words in your mouth. Yet Moses persists in his unbelief, and his unbelief is is wrong because he's only accounting for his own deficiencies and not for God's strength to make up for those deficiencies. And then you have the Israelites who were told did not listen to Moses because they're broken spirits and harsh slavery in chapter six, verse nine. And that just means that the hardness of their circumstances have made them cynical. They've just been crushed by life and they don't believe anymore. They don't care anymore, they've lost all hope. Their reference point is not God's power to save. It's the reality of their slavery. And what happens when that happens? My friend Paul Miller, in his book on prayer, he says it's like being unable to move, unable to dream. Our hearts shut down and we simply begin to show up for life because, I like the way he says, because most days it's just hard to get out of your pajamas. Pride is unbelief. It's the anti-God state of mind. But so is despair and cynicism and self-pity They're the flip side. Of pride. And in the exodus, God is coming right at their fear and cynicism. Listen to Mary's song again. Pay attention to the pattern. Luke 1, and 52. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of his heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. But listen. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Now, here's the question. Who does God work against? proud? The mighty? The rich? Who does he work for? The humble, the hungry, the weak, the poor. Now you tell me, if that's true, is it good news or is it bad news to be weak and needy and in over your head? Is it good news or bad news? There you go. Hey, hey, we got an answer. What's up? Does weakness and need disqualify you, or do they qualify you? See, Moses acts as if his weakness is bad news. He acts as if it disqualifies him, but that's unbelief, and it's entirely incongruent from the way God works. God works to save the weak, and so the second reason we don't obey is because we're afraid, and fear is the opposite of awe. It's unbelief. Now, all we're doing here is exposing the way that the gospel itself works. This is the way salvation works. Salvation doesn't come to the strong, but to the weak. Not the righteous, but the sinful, okay? I'm going to say a statement, and I'm not going to qualify it, and some of you are going to be confused by it, but I'm, it's, I'm, this is shock value here, okay? There is no such thing as a strong Christian. That's a contradiction in terms. Only screw-ups and sinners can be, can be Christians, Because salvation is what God does for us, not what we do for him, and it comes to the weak and the needy. And so there are two obstacles, both our pride and our fear and our despair. So then, okay, we got to finish up. How then can we obey? Okay, how can we overcome these these impulses in our lives, either towards pride that would cause us to look down on other people and be obstinate and impatient, or fear that would cause us to just, disqualify ourselves before we even get started in what God would call us to do. And the answer is we have to see and know God's power, the power that he puts on display in the Exodus. Remember, that's what the whole reason for this thing, isn't it? You shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will display my power to you, God says. But but see, it's not enough. It's not enough to just know that God is mighty. You have to see and know God's power, but not just his power. You have to see and know that he is a God of power and a God of grace at the same time. It's not enough to just know God is mighty. You have to know that he is mighty to save, as the prophet Zephaniah says. And that's what Christmas is all about. Listen, when the prophet Isaiah prophesied about the coming of Messiah into the world, he said these famous words, and many of you could probably quote them with me. He said, for unto us a a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called, anybody? Wonderful Counselor. And that Hebrew word translated wonderful isn't an adjective. It's interesting. It's actually a noun. It literally means he will be a wonder. And there's that technical term used here in Exodus to describe the miracles God's performing in Egypt in order to deliver Israel from their slavery. The coming of Jesus into the world is the direct, supernatural, powerful intervention of God into human history to work salvation for his people. And in Luke's account in his gospel which we read also at the beginning of our service, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to have a, a, a son, and Mary you know, says, well, how will this be since I am a virgin? That's impossible. How's that going to happen? And Gabriel's response is this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God for nothing, will be impossible with God. Jesus' birth is a miraculous display of God's power. He is born of God. He is the son of God. It's a title which refers to his divine origin and power. But here's the thing. But he's a baby. Fullness of God and helpless babe, as the Getty hymn goes. And that's significant because what you see is in the incarnation, the power of God is wrapped in human frailty and weakness. And that's something completely different. In Exodus, God saves by showing his power. But in the gospel, he saves through power and grace. He saves by losing power, actually. He becomes weak because he is not just a God of power. He's also a God of grace. And that, see, that's where the awe comes from. At least for me. Is to see this God of infinite power becoming a lowly child. And that's why, see, that's why Mary sings. That the strong and the mighty are brought down and the humbled are exalted. Okay, Because think, what does Christmas do to pride and boasting? What does Christmas do to pride and boasting? Well, in the incarnation, God gives up power and becomes weak to show the strong that human strength can't save. The gospel dismantles all of the arrogance and boasting of the proud by showing the inadequacy of human strength and human righteousness. The kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to the strong and to the rich. And to the connected, it belongs to the poor in spirit. And that means, on the one hand, I should be suspicious of the things that make me strong. And on the other hand, I should rejoice when God begins to thwart me and make me more dependent upon him. But listen, what does Christmas do to our fear and insecurities? Okay, where, where you may, might be like Moses and the Israelites, you know, just, just knotted up with fear and insecurity. There's a trajectory that is put forth for us in these stories. And it is that we are to be a people who are to move towards weakness towards vulnerability, towards suffering for the sake of the mission. I, can't, I just can't get over Mary's simple prayer. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the implications of the prayer are simple and straightforward. Mary's saying yes to suffering, yes to being misunderstood, yes to being mistreated, yes to being a social outcast. And in doing so, she's the model of the obedience that God is after. And so here's, here's how you know you're on the right track. The kind of obedience that God's been calling us to all throughout this series you know you're on the right track when you have to stop at some point and say, "How how is this going to happen? Right? If it's not that moment of crisis of faith for you, how is God going to come through and do this for me, then keep going. You're not there yet. When in reality, what we learn from this passage is, is when you move from a place of strength to a place of weakness, you're actually stronger because God promises to meet you there with his power. When you intentionally forsake safety and security for vulnerability and uncertainty, you're actually more secure. And when life runs over you and it's hard to get out of your pajamas, that's a good place to be, not a bad place to be, because God resists pride but gives grace to the humble and to the needy. Right? Nothing is impossible to God. He, he's mighty to save. Not just mighty. He's mighty to save. And that truth is the power for obedience. Okay? Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table now, would you uh, would you do what you promised to do, both in word and in sign? This this sacrament is the sign and seal of the word of the gospel that we just heard. And so, come and confirm to our hearts the truth of what we just spoke—that you indeed are a God, who is not just mighty, but you are mighty to save. Uh, as we partake of your body broken and your blood shed for us, would you drive that truth home to our hearts? And would the result be a new obedience, a new faith? a new willingness to answer the call. Here I am, Lord. Uh, Send me so that you might be uh, praised and glorified in all the earth. That's our prayer and our hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think of Christmas, we often, you know, the songs that we sing, the feel that you get is, is very sentimental. We've sentimentalized the story in many ways. But in reality, when the Gospels talk about what God did, In breaking into human history in the person of Jesus, in the womb of the virgin, they call it an act of God's power. And so we worship the God who is the God of all power. He is mighty, uh, but he is mighty to save. And when that truth comes home to your heart, it will banish pride, and it will banish fear, and you'll finally be free to obey him. Uh, as he means for you to. That's the promise of this benediction. So receive it then. This is God's power, the promise of God's power at work for you. The one who's mighty to save. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.